So this is God is omnipotent. That's our next attribute, the omnipotence of God. What does the word omnipotent mean? Yep, that's right, all powerful. That's why the word impotent means to lack power, to be weak or to not be able to do something. All right, so it's the op- impotency is the opposite of omnipotent. So you have all potency, all power. And so have a little picture of the Greek god Atlas, who I don't remember the circumstances why, but had to save the world by carrying it on his back. And we're going to talk a little bit about that at the very end. We have the God is all-powerful. Charnock defines this as infinite and incomprehensible power pertains to the nature of God. So God's power is infinite, which means it has no ends, and it's incomprehensible, which means we can't really fathom it. We can't really understand it fully. And it pertains to his nature. And this is another one you're going you're to hear this kind of ad nauseum because this is true for all of God's attributes. But with all, as it is with all of God's attributes, these are not things that he possesses the way we do. Like power is something we possess. That's why we can grow in power, whether it's physical power or I don't even know what you would call it, but metaphysical power, uh, additional abilities. We can increase in power. We can decrease in power, which means that power is something outside of us that we add to ourselves. But power is not something outside of God that he adds to himself. It just simply is who he is. His, his power, being powerful, is identical to his nature. So he just simply, so like we always say, God is love. Love is not something God possesses. He is love. Uh, God is power. Power is not something God has. It's something God is. He is power itself. When any power that we have is ultimately a reflection and a participation in God. Well, we receive any power we have, we receive from God. But he is power itself. So his very nature has infinite, is infinite and incomprehensible power. This isn't super important, but it just, anytime you read about it, this comes up. So I just wanted to briefly talk about, uh, historically, we've, we've, theologians have distinguished between two different kinds of power. Uh, God's absolute power and ordinate power. His absolute power is God is able to do that which is possible, but which he will not do. So there are things that God doesn't do. There are things that God will never do, but he still has the ability to do them. So his power is absolute where he, he could do anything if he wanted to do it. But that brings us to his ordinate power. There are things that he could do if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to. So they'll never be done. And so that's why his ordinate power is simply what he act- the power he actually exercises. The power that actually works in history is his ordinate power. But he has power beyond what we receive. He has power beyond what is exerted. Um, but he, does, he chooses not to exercise those things. So it, ordinate power is essentially a subset of absolute power. Right? His absolute power is his infinite power. All things he can and could do in his ordinate power is just what he will do. So like I say, it, that's not, it doesn't really, that's not a huge important definition. It just, it comes up, so I talk about it. Uh, I like that Ch- the way Charnock also says this, that the power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom can direct, Whatsoever the infinite, or that's just, sorry, that's a typo. The infinite purity of his will can resolve. So whatever God desires, whatever God deems wise, and whatever he wants, that is what his power is able to accomplish. God can do whatever he wants to do. God can do whatever he has decided to do. Whatever God sets his will toward will and can be accomplished. And we're going to come back to this uh, in a little bit when we start distinguishing things. And you'll see why this is really, really important. But uh, this is basically a definition of omnipotency. And this is more specifically a a definition of power, specifically as it pertains to God. What does the word power mean? Because if you think about it, uh, the word power, we use it a little differently even in our own language. Sometimes power is referred to as like a physical force. So if if, if you get hit by a truck, that truck brought power. That was a lot of power that the truck brought. But we can also think of power in more abstract terms like authority. And the Bible will use the word power in terms of authority. So we might say uh, President Joe Biden has a lot of power. 
Now, that's not repenting to his physical stature. His physical stature is actually quite weak and frail. But he has a great authority, which gives him a kind of power. But notice with, almost, with, with that kind of a power, it's never intrinsic to ourselves, right? Even if, if I were made the, and what a glorious three minutes this would be, but if I were made the dictator of the whole wide world, I would have an incredible amount of power. But still, in order to get done the things I would want to get, do, to get done, I would have to have other people help me. So even though I would have a universal power, it wouldn't be my nature, my nature is still not powerful because I would still need all you people go do that, all you people go do that. That's not the case with God. Although God does he work through means, he, he can and does choose to use people to accomplish things. He doesn't actually need to. God's power is innate to him. It's part of his nature, which is why it's, it is authority, but it goes far beyond authority. He, he can simply accomplish whatever he wants to by himself. He never needs assistance or aid or help. And that's because his power is his nature. Uh, we do not have power in and of our, our own nature. Um, so again, so this is his brief definition of power. And it's God's ability to do, to bring to pass, to accomplish whatever he pleases, whatever he deems wise, whatever he wants to do. That's very simple proof text for omnipotence. Uh, it's, it comes up in mo more than one of the Gospels, but I chose Luke 137, for nothing will be impossible with God. This is essentially talking about God's omnipotence, that there is no impossible thing. God can do whatever he pleases. God can do whatever he wants. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. Nothing is impossible with God. Now, what are some proofs? How do we know that God is all-powerful? Well, I have a list of a handful of things. Number one, probably the most important, is creation itself. Uh, when, we, when we try to fathom creating everything, it's, it's quite astonishing. Yeah, you think about just the size and the scope of the material world. Uh, I like to bring up there are stars that are physical stars that are so big, human imagination can't actually fathom them. I mean, when we think of things that we can't comprehend, we tend to think of things outside of creation. But there are things in creation we can't comprehend. There are numbers so big that you really can't understand them. Like, we know how many atoms there are in the known universe. But that number is so large, it doesn't really mean anything to you. It's like 1.07 like 1 to the 42nd, 23rds or so. I mean... What does that mean? You can say chicken for all I care. I mean, that's a number that's so big we can't fathom it. There are stars that are so big you can't put them to scale. There's nothing on earth big enough and small enough that we could even really put them to scale. I mean, the physical world is so grand. It's so immense. And yet it's also so tiny. Right? When we think of electrons and neutrons and cells, it's unfathomably big, unfathomably small, and God in one instance, well, I guess over the course of six days, brought it into being. Right, he just made it. Whoops. It, it, it's just incredible. Uh, and the Bible says he made it with, he, with a word, which is, again, analogical language. It's not literal. God didn't necessarily literally say something. But that's just an expression of his will. With one act of will, everything came into being. I mean, we can talk about it, but again, we, just, we really don't understand that. And a really good point that Charnock made is if someone wanted to be a big smart aleck, they could argue, well, the creation doesn't prove that God is omnipotent. It doesn't prove that he has infinite power. It just proves that he has quite a lot, right? But, but we still don't, we still can't get from created the universe to unlimited power. He just had to have had enough power to create the universe, how much that is. And uh, I, th I think that's a little silly, but Charnock even takes that silly argument, and he makes a good point, and he says, no, I think that's wrong. That, that argument makes sense when you're talking about um, building things that already exist, right? Like I could build houses every single day until I die, and, and that just takes a lot of power. But when you build a house, you're not bringing something from a state of non-being to a state of being. You're bringing something from a state of being and forming it into a different kind of state of being. So the kind of creation that God did isn't like the kind of creation that we do. It's, it's on a whole other scale. And Charnock argued when you start talking about bringing something from non-being to being, that is infinite power. That, that, that's, that's not just a lot of power. That takes infinite power to, to just 
I mean, think about it. I, I hate to use the word poof because then it makes it sound like magic. But literally, it just, everything just came into existence. I mean, what does that even mean? So creation itself. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's just instantaneous of his own design, of his own will, of his own power. Just everything came into being. It's, it's just astonishing. And so creation itself certainly testifies to the power of God. God's providence testifies to his power. Uh, specifically in governing the creation. The fact that he sort of metaphorically is holding the whole universe together. I mean, how do you do that without an incredible amount of power and authority? So in the way he governs the universe, keeps it together, holds it together, keeps it moving forward. Um, but even part of his providence is fulfilled prophecy. Is not just, it doesn't just demonstrate God's wisdom, but as we talked about, it demonstrates his power. Because again, when God per tells us the future, he's not telling us what inevitably will happen. Remember, he's telling us what he's going to do. So God's knowledge of the future is not just about his wisdom, it's about his power. He has the power to say, in 400 years, I'm going to bring creation to this point. And then he actually does it. So the fact that God can tell us things in scripture, and then hundreds and hundreds of years later fulfill them, that demonstrates an incredible amount of power. Only an infinite amount of power and control, which is part of his providence, part of how he is in control of the direction, the flow of creation, the flow of history. And we're going to show just some brief proof texts for all of these, but um, I don't think we need to go too in-depth. Uh, clearly throughout Scripture, miracles. The purpose of miracles is to demonstrate a power that only God has. Uh, the, whole, the whole purpose of miracles is to identify we're dealing with God right now because nothing else possesses this kind of power. So God was able to make the sun stand still so Joshua had more time to fight his battle. How, an angel can't do that. Human beings can't do that. We will never possess the technology to make the earth and the sun stop in their rotation. We, just, we won't ever possess that kind of power that kind of knowledge. God alone has that kind of power. God made the head of an axe float. God made a donkey speak. God turned water into blood. We could go on and on and on with all of these miracles that clearly prove God has an incomprehensible power. But my favorite miracles are the ones that pertain to Jesus. And I think in Scripture they emphasize these too. When Scripture wants to give us how do we know God has a power that's just beyond our comprehension? You just you look at Christ. The hypostatic union is potentially one of God's greatest miracles. I mean, God managed to unite the divine nature with the human nature. This, this miracle is so astounding that this right here is the reason why Muslims don't become Christians. I mean, my, my wife has Muslim family members and I, I get really into Muslim apologetics. And Muslims just love, this is like one of the, the Islam's favorite argument. God is so different than man, he's so other than man, to talk about a God-man is to talk about a square circle. That's an impossibility. A man cannot be God. By definition, God is not man. Therefore, if Jesus is a man, he cannot be God. That's, that's the whole, is they just cannot fathom that God is able to unite mankind with divinity in such a way that it doesn't destroy one or the other. Jesus is Humanity wasn't swallowed up by the divinity. The divinity wasn't corrupted by the humanity. God brought God and man together in one person without blending or mixing or breaking either one of the natures. It's, it's, it's again, it's just beyond our ability to even understand. Uh, the virgin birth, this is a huge theme in scripture. Uh, it began in the Old Testament uh, with Abram and Sarah. And remember when Sarah said to have had a child way past her years, she laughs. And Abraham says something along the lines of like, cannot God do anything? Right? He, he understands the, the, the omnipotency of God. God can do anything like make a woman who is past childbearing years give uh, a child. And then God one-ups that Annie. He says, I'll do you one better. I will not only just make a very old woman have uh, baby, I will make a woman who has never slept with a man have a baby. That is just incredible. Again, that's something we will never have the technology to do. 
We will, human beings will never have a virgin give birth. That won't happen. We can artificially inseminate. We can do all of these things to avoid sexual contact, but we cannot avoid semination. God alone had the ability to do that. And the scriptures certainly lift this up as this great miracle of God. But above all, probably throughout the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus is almost always put on a pedestal of, you want to believe that God is powerful, he brought a man back from the dead. And as we said in one of our Ephesians sermon series, the resurrection always, is always tied to the ascension. He didn't just raise him from Hades. He didn't just raise him from the dead. He then raised him up into heaven. Like, have you ever asked the question, where did Jesus' body go? Like, where is it? He didn't turn into a ghost. He still has his body. Where is it? Where did it go? We, we don't know. By the way, this is why uh, Mormons actually believe that there's a, a planet in our solar system where God and Jesus live. And even though that's a little silly, the re, what, what they are comprehending, though, is Jesus' body had to go somewhere. And so theologians have talked about him being transliterated into another realm. Or I mean, we just don't know. It's, it's just an act of God's power that is beyond our comprehension. He, he raised a man from the dead, and if that wasn't enough, he translated him into heaven. It's, it's, just, it's just remarkable. Again, it's, it's almost at the point where it's just kind of words coming out of my mouth. It's just that hard to fathom the kind of power. Um, so certainly miracles in Scripture are, their whole point is to prove God can do things that are, require infinite power. Um, another one that's often underlooked is conversion. The fact that people believe in Jesus, the fact that people get saved. When you read what the Bible says about conversion, it describes it as an impossible miracle. Uh, All the Bible ever says is that men are dead in their sins and trespasses. And the Bible says that the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And that the gospel is offensive to the world. So we go out into the world and we preach a gospel that the Bible says they're going to hate They're going to find it silly. They're going to be offended by it. And by the way, they're spiritually dead, so they can't even act on it anyway. So why do we preach the gospel? These people can't believe it. That's what the Bible says. They cannot believe it. They don't have the ability to. Uh, But that's where Jesus says what is impossible with man is possible with God. He is able to spiritually resurrect, illuminate our minds, convert us, persevere our souls into heaven. Conversion requires an incredible amount of metaphysical power. You could never make someone believe the gospel. You, we will never create a pill that makes people believe the gospel. We will never create a medicine that can save people's souls. This is a power that belongs outside of human creative capacities. And then just lastly... Um, more of a logical inference, but as we said, because God's power is who he is, it's his nature, right? Power is not something God possesses, it's part of who he is. And we know that his essence, his nature is infinite, then if his power is his essence and his essence is infinite, what does it say about his power? His power is infinite, right? So just logically, we know that if God is infinite in all his ways and he has any power at all, then his power has to be as infinite as he is. Because again, remember, we, we add power to ourselves, which is why our power does not have to be in the same measurement as our being, if that makes sense. But because God's power is his being, he can't have a being or an essence that's greater than his power. Otherwise, we would be saying his power is not his essence. But because his power is who he is by nature, then it has to be as big as his nature. So we know that God is powerful because God is infinite and his power is who he is. So he has infinite power. Does that make sense? We're going to look at just, and I don't have a scripture for every single one. We're going to look at just a few scriptures to back some of this up, even though I'm, I'm sure you're tracking with me. But do you have any thoughts or questions or anything about this list? Yeah, and, and I would even say, if you want to be technical, you're right, but I wouldn't even say they're part of him, they just are him. Right, like it's not like, a, he doesn't have parts. So yeah, this, his attributes are just descriptions of who he is. So they are him. He is love. He is power. Yeah, that's, and that's exactly right. So again, and that's why they have to be as big as he is. So to speak very kind of colloquially.
Um, so let's look at just a couple, a few scriptures. Speaking of creation proving God's power, the scriptures testify to this. Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So here Paul is saying every single human being that's ever existed knows God exists. There's no such thing as a true atheist. Everybody knows God exists. They, they know it so much that they are without excuse. No one will stand before God one day and be like, oh, you existed? Oh, shoot, I honestly, I didn't know. If I knew you existed, I would have sought you out. And I would have, but I just, I looked, I studied, and it just, there was no evidence that you existed. I, I'm sorry. If, if that was true, if someone really was ignorant to God's existence, then it would be unjust for God to send them to hell. But the reason God sends people to hell, even if they haven't heard the gospel, is because they, they don't have that excuse. They do know he exists. And how do they know he exists? In the creation, ever since things have been made, the creation reveal his divine nature so that he is not a man, that there is something other than men and angels above us. His divine nature and his eternal power. That there is a powerful God is something everybody knows it's been clearly perceived ever since the creation in the things that have been made. So again, you look at creation and you know an infinitely powerful God made this. Everybody knows that. The same way you walk through a museum, you see art, you know a very artistic person created this. When you go up into the mountains and you look at the stars and the, and the trees and you, you look at these beautiful things, you think it, an infinitely powerful artist created this. It's just intuitive. We see it and we know it. So creation certainly testifies to his eternal power, his power he's always had. Have you ever talked to someone and they won't acknowledge that God is, they'll say a higher being, they won't say the word God, but they'll say a higher being in this world. Yeah, uh, the, no, yeah, that's such a good point. As a matter of fact, I, t I like to tell this to people all the time. I don't think people realize that um, atheism is really a dying movement. Now, I don't, that sounds like a good thing, but it's not, because unfortunately, these former atheists are not becoming Christians. But there was a time when I was a kid when like atheism was all the thing. And it was like cool to be an atheist. But when I was doing college ministry, we would do a lot of on-campus evangelism and very, very few college kids are Christians. But what I found is that even though almost no kid I ever talked to was a Christian, they were never atheists. They were exactly what you described. They were deists. There's some powerful force out there. Is it a man? Is it a woman? I don't know. Is it gendered? I don't know. Is there one? Is there many? I don't But But people just cannot bring themselves to say that there's, n there's no creative intelligence that made this world and is operating in it. They're willing to suppress enough of God to not have to like obey him. So they're not going to be, like you said, they're not going to even call him God. They're going to it's just this mysterious intelligent, creative intelligence and I can just do whatever I want and this thing doesn't care. But they just can't get themselves to say, this just created itself and we're all here by accident and nothing made this. You know, there, there are people who say that, but so few people are willing to say that. You're exactly right. Most people are just, yeah, I think there's probably a God or some creative intelligence, but I just, I don't know what else to tell you other than that. Yeah. Yep, that's that's exactly right. You need the God character. <laughs> yeah. Even even when you look at atheism and you study the literature of Darwin and the evolutionist movement, even they can't help but speak of nature as if it's an intelligible force. They speak of nature as if, they speak of natural selection as if nature is pruning off the weak and enlightening the strong. And we talk about Mother Earth and if we hurt Mother Earth, she will retaliate. And because nature is just so obviously personally governed, right? We're not just talking about it being created. It's not like God created it and left it. God created it and then he's always governing it 
And that's, we see that too. We don't just know it's created. We see that someone is working in this, which is why exactly you've got to have the force or you've got to have natural selection making its own choices. Exactly. You, you either have to have a, a personal being working in nature or you have to personify nature, which is what hippies and spiritualists do. Nature is God and we are all connected. And, but, but you just can't get away from the fact that something made this, someone made this and someone is working in this. It's just, it's too intuitive to who we are. And we see it, that you can't avoid it. And, and I didn't show it, but at the begin, in this passage, Paul talks about people know the truth, but they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And that's what we're talking about. People see this stuff, but they don't want to submit to God. They don't want to obey him. They don't want to change their lives. So they suppress it and they pretend it's something else. It, the, the, he goes on to say that we, we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and worship created things rather than the creature, rather than the creator. So we, we, we suppress it. Oh, and then he says we exchange the truth for a lie. So we know that this is true, but we suppress that and we switch it out for a lie and then we manipulate what we know to be true. And we do all of that so that we don't have to repent. But, but you're right, there's no getting away from this. You can't ever get to the point where there, there, there's no God, right? It's, it's always in you, yeah. Yeah, if you got to that point, you could, would have no argument for right or wrong. And that's that Everybody's got some sense of right. Exactly. Which Paul brings up in the next chapter in Romans 2. God has written a law in our hearts. Yep. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because people sin and feel guilty, but they won't acknowledge that they did anything wrong. So it has to be your fault for making me feel bad. Exactly. And, and I seriously, now I just wish I would have posted the whole thing because Paul, he brings us up at the end of Romans 1. He says that those who engage in all of these sinful practices, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. So what the reason Christians are hated is because everyone, I, I, there's an apologist I listened to who was talking about evangelism, and he said this really powerful thing. He says, whenever you're de, you know, debating or preaching the gospel to someone, there's, there's something very, very important that you have to remember. And that is, according to Romans 1, their conscience is on your side. Their conscience is on your side. We're debating them, but their conscience is on our team. And what happens is God has programmed his law in their hearts so that people know they're sinful. Again, this is why God can judge people who have never heard the gospel. Because even though they haven't heard the gospel, they still knew God existed, they knew his moral law, and they rebelled against it. So that's why God judges people who have never heard the gospel. They're still accountable for sinning against the God they knew existed. And that's because it was in their conscience. And what happens is people want to cauterize that conscience. Their conscience is... Is, is raging war against them. And the more they sin, and the more other people make them feel better about their sin, they begin to cauterize the wound of their conscience. And eventually, Paul says in Romans 1, God gives people over. Eventually, people will get to a point where they stop feeling conviction. And, and the, the really extreme end of that is what we call um, psychopaths. People who can eat, eat babies and feel no remorse. It's not, now, not everyone has been good over and necessarily God lets them go to that extreme. There's a, but still, you get the point. You can harden your heart so much that you begin to feel a little less conviction. You begin to feel a little less of that internal war. And the reason Christians are hated is because we delay that process. Sinners are trying to sin and they're trying to bring around people who will encourage them. And then here comes the Christian and says, you shouldn't do that. And now we've reawoken their conscience. And then they get viscerally angry because just like what Bill said, like we've made them feel bad about themselves again. But really it's not even us so much as we were just the means to, to stir the waters of their conscience up that they had spent a lot of time trying to calm the waters down and then we come and start throwing rocks and creating waves and ripples. And, um, but yeah, that, that's exactly right is we remind people that as Romans 1 begins, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. We remind people the wrath of God is on you. 
And they had been working hard all week to forget that and to pretend like that wasn't true. And then we come back in and say, by the way, the wrath of God abides upon you. And then they, they hate it. That's exactly right. That's what's causing all fuss about abortion. Yes. People, people don't want to hear you say that babies are people or humans. I mean, they just don't want to hear it because it grates against what they've accepted. Exactly. It boils down to a lot. People don't want to be accountable for things, so they pretend there's no God, so they feel yeah. That's right. That's right. Or they make up a God who just loves everything that they're doing. That's right. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly right. Little evangelist, yeah. That's right. Uh, one other thing on this point before we move on. I remember... Uh, and this is something Bill says a lot, like it's almost a catchphrase that Bill has at this point, where Bill will say, once you grant Genesis 1-1, everything else follows. Like once you grant, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, everything else follows. And there's so much truth to that. I remember thinking something along those lines of me and my, a couple of my football buddies, after a men's Bible study, we went to McDonald's, and it just so happened that a lot of other football guys were there. It was a small town. You run into each other a lot. And, uh, you know, we just came from Bible study, so we were still talking about the things we were talking about. And I think some of the football guys overheard us, and then that got them. We weren't sitting together, like we were just near each other. And I think that got them maybe talking about spiritual things. Because I overheard one of the football guys say something along the lines of, uh, like, what, like what Bonnie was saying, I, I think there's a God, and I think he made everything, and I just, but I just don't believe in all that, those miracles. I don't believe in all those miracle stuff, and that he inspired the Bible, and I just don't believe in all that stuff. And I thought, that, that's a very strange argument. To work from God created everything in an instant from nothing, but then things like a talking snake is too hard for him. A talking donkey's way too weird for the God who made galaxies come in. Right, well, once you grant that God made everything from nothing, every other miracle is pretty pathetic after that. It, it reminds me also of that, I've told you this a million times, but I just love it, that famous story of Charles Spurgeon who preached a sermon on prayer, and then a woman in his congregation came up to him and said, I don't know why, pastor, but for some reason I just really struggle to bring the small things to God. It just feels unholy. It just feels worthless to bring these small things to God. Like, there are so much more important things. Why would I bring the small things to God? And Charles Spurgeon responded, Sister, when you're talking about God, all things are small things. All things are small things, right? Once, exactly, once, once he creates everything out of nothing, everything is small after that. <laughs> nothing is big after that, right? Uh, so once you grant creation, you've granted eternal power. You've granted infinite power. And turning water into blood really shouldn't blow your mind that much anymore. Like, he, he made everything out of nothing, right? So obviously creation shows his power. Providence shows his power, speaking specifically of the sun. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So again, you see how the divine nature, which is something both God and the sun share, the divine nature upholds the universe by the word of his power. It takes an incredible amount of power to literally make sure the universe is a well-oiled machine and it's working properly, and God does that with his power. Um, prophecy, we talked about how prophecy is part of his providence. It shows his power. 
He, God says this, the former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, they came to pass. So again, we, here we have the language of God talking about the fulfillment of prophecy and attributing it to his power, not his knowledge, not, hey, look what I was able to foresee, not, hey, look at what I was able to figure out, hey, look what I accomplished, look what I did. I tell you what's going to happen and then I do it. Prophecy is more about God's power than it is about his knowledge. I, I love that. I announced them and then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Boom. Uh, we've preached on this. I love this because this kind of talks about resurrection and conversion in one passage. From Ephesians 1, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? So if his power is so great it's immeasurable, that means it's infinite. So there's omnipotence right there. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So here we have the immense and great power of God raising Jesus from the dead and then Paul using that as proof that he can spiritually and one day physically resurrect us. The same power that was raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that had to be in work to bring us to faith. So we see God's power expressed in conversion and in resurrection. Now, this is a really important slide. We won't spend as much time as we probably need to on this, but there is a common misconception that comes up when, especially if you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, when they think about what it means to be all-powerful. And that misconception is people like to define it omnipotence like this. God can do all conceivable things. Anything that my brain can make up, God can do that thing. And that is not a good definition. That's not how the Bible certainly defines it. And once you define it this way, once you define all power is any logical absurdity I can make up, God has to be able to do, now you're in big trouble. You've gotten yourself in big trouble. And the way that usually expresses itself is through this question. Can God create a rock so heavy even he cannot lift it? This is what, you know, atheists used to love to bring up to prove that an omnipotent God is absurd. Because we can disprove that. Because in, in this dilemma, God's either going to not be able to do one thing, which means he can't do it, right? He either can't create the rock, which means he's not all-powerful, or he can create it, but then he can't lift it, which means he's not all-powerful, right? And so anything that I can conceive of, God ought to be able to do it. That's a really bad definition of omnipotence. And the reason we know that is because the Bible is very clear. There are things that God cannot do. There are things God cannot do. Let's talk about those. Hebrews 16. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Right? Lying is not just something God does not do. It's not like God could lie, but he just chooses not to. Right? The text is very clear. This is an impossibility. God is not able to do this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God cannot deny himself. This has many implications. This means, again, he cannot lie, because that would be denying himself. That would be denying a previous word that he spoke, which would be a denial of himself. This would also mean that he can't make himself not exist. God could not turn himself into a non-God. Uh, anything that contradicts the nature of God is something he cannot do. To contradict who he is is a denial of himself. So not only can God not lie, he can't even want to lie. God is not even able to desire lying, let alone able to lie. And we go on and on. There are plenty of things that God cannot do. One of the attributes we've talked about is immutable. Immutability. And what is immutability? God cannot change. We've already talked about almost all of his attributes. The opposite are things he can't do. Right? So God is all-knowing, so he can't forget. There are, we could conceive of a whole host of things that God is not able to do. So that's why, again, this is a bad definition. And so that takes us back to Charnock. Remember, Charnock's definition was that God is able to do whatever he desires to accomplish. Anything that goes against his character and nature or anything that he does not desire are not necessarily things he cannot do. So this is why God cannot do logically impossible things because that's a form of lying, right? So God cannot make circles square. He could make a circle thing turn into a square, like he could turn that plate into a square plate, but he cannot make a circle, by definition, he cannot make a circle square. 
That's, that's a logical impossibility, and an impossibility is a form of lying, and God cannot lie. So anything that goes against God's character and nature are things God is unable to do, which is why John Gill defines his power is God can do all things which are not contrary to his nature or perfections. This is a great definition of omnipotence. God can do all things which are not contrary to his nature or perfections. Anything that would deny his nature or make him less perfect are things he cannot do. And here's the beauty of this definition. This really works to the all-powerful point because the assumption in this silly little word game is that any limitation of what God can do is automatically makes him less powerful. But, it's, but what you have to understand is think about it. There are limitations that make you more powerful. So when we talk about God being powerful, we're not just, we don't want to just conceive of God doing anything. We want to conceive of him as being powerful, right? There's a difference between doing anything and being powerful. Here's, here's my favorite example. I've given it from the pulpit, but let me give it again. Let's say that you were joining a team, whatever sport you enjoy, football, tennis, golf, whatever, and you were about to join a team, and you had two teams you got to pick from, and they both wanted you, so it was up to you. The red team uh, is able to lose. They're very, very good, but sometimes they lose. It's possible to lose. The blue team cannot lose. It's just impossible. Well, we don't know why. They've tried to forfeit games. It can't work. They win every single time. They can't lose. Red team, they're able to lose. Blue team, they are unable to lose. Which team is more powerful? The blue team. When these teams go head-to-head, the blue team is going to win every time. But notice the blue team has a limitation that the red team doesn't. But that limitation makes the blue team more powerful. The red team, they could walk around and say, we're more powerful than the blue team because we can win and we can lose. They can't lose. They have a limitation. But notice how that limitation actually makes them more powerful. So again, our understanding of God's power is not just he can do anything my mind can conceive of. We, we want to actually believe that he can do things which contribute to being powerful. <laughs> Uh, being able to kill yourself is not power. Being dead is not power. The, the, the weakest point you can possibly be at is when you die. When you cease to exist, there's nothing weaker than ceasing to exist. So God's inability to cease to exist makes him more powerful, not less powerful. He, he, phys- he can literally not get to the point of weakness. That's that limitation, Right? So yeah, absolutely. God cannot create a rock so heavy that even he cannot lift it. He can't do that. And that's what makes him so powerful. That's what makes him so powerful. God has created all of the rocks. It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> well, it is, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm just kind of hanging up on that. So much of this is just feeble minds trying to... Con- Try to explain the unexplained. Oh, that's true. I mean, and, and but 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 this this is can be I somewhat explained. I understand. Right. That, but yeah. I understand that rationally from a human standpoint. Sure. But it just is insulting God. Oh of course. And and it, that's always what it's intended it's to be. That's right. Us. That's right. The earth, the creation, it's not there. That's right. It, there's not even a there to be there. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, and he is so intertwined with it. There's nothing, uh, you know, there's just nothing that is without his imprint, his physical design of molecules and atoms and how those things work. And so it. it Oh no! I, I, yeah, no, I, I yeah. understand that. People don't get it. We try to just discuss it with them to explain it to them. 
Right. Exactly. And, and even this, this is more for us than for, for, for them. You know, they're going to blaspheme, but it's just important for us to know what, when we speak of God being all-powerful, we, we have to purge from our minds that what that means is that any situation I can create is something God can do. That's not anywhere in the Bible, and that's simply, and more importantly, that's not the definition of being powerful. Being able to fail is not power. <laughs> so God is more powerful by not being able to fail, right? We're t- God's attributes are working towards power, not against power. So anything that denies himself and makes him weak, he is unable to do, and that limitation makes him more powerful. Just like the team that can't lose is more powerful than the team that can lose, even though one has a, limit, a, te- has a limitation of kinds. Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, yeah, because he, he is in total, uh, right? The Bible talks about that he is slow to anger, right? God doesn't throw tempers. God doesn't lose control of himself. So that's another inability of God. He, he's unable to throw a fit. He's unable to lose control of himself. And again, if, if you had to pick a, a leader, who's the more powerful leader? The leader that's capable of flying off the handle or the leader that can't do that? That's always in control, always level-headed. You see how these limitations are actually strengths. So don't think of all power as uh, God cannot have any conceivable limitation from a human perspective. That's not what all-powerful means. Uh, again, a better definition is what Gill gives us. Whoops, I went the wrong way. Correct. Exactly. And he has the power to do anything which does not deny himself. That's right. And uh, so that's what we said. So what we would call, I should have put this in quotations, right? What, what, what non-believers want to say are weaknesses of God. Look, he can't create a rock so heavy he can't lift it. Or look, God can't die. Or look, God can't make himself cease to exist. These quote-unquote weaknesses are actually the very things that make God more powerful. That the, like, you're darn right. He cannot die, which is why my God's better than yours. If Zeus, who can die, goes up in a head-to-head battle with Yahweh, who can't die, my God's winning every time. By my logic, that makes him more powerful than Zeus, not less powerful, right? So his quote-unquote weaknesses are actually strengths, which leads us to what we conclude with, which is our applications. I like to try to make this relevant, even though they don't necessarily have to be, but it's fun to to do it. And so the first application is that God can be trusted. Which God do you trust more? The one that could lie to you or the one that can't lie to you? The one whose promises he might not actually be able to bring about, he could fail to bring about what he says he's going to? Or the God who cannot fail to bring about what he says he's going to? The power of God, being able to do anything that he desires, is the very foundation for our trust. Can you imagine... If the resurrection doesn't happen one day and it just turns out God was lying this whole time, or even worse, well, maybe this isn't worse, but equally bad, he tries to resurrect us on the final day, but he just, he emptied the tank with Jesus. He's got no power left. Right? He just ran out of juice, so you're dead now. You're, you're dead forever. How terrible would that be? Our, the very foundation of all our trust in God is that he can do and has to do what he has committed himself to do. And by the way, the two verses that I took us to to show that there are quote-unquote things God can't do, that's exactly the context of these verses. These verses bring up his limitations to show us that this is what makes God more trustworthy. For example, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Because God cannot deny himself, this is why he is always faithful to us, even when we don't deserve it. Even when we provoke God... To be unfaithful, he will never be unfaithful because he can't be because it would deny his very nature and character. It would, to, it would be a square circle to have an unfaithful Yahweh. It can't happen. So we know that God will be faithful and good to us because that's all God can be to us. And again, that's a limitation that makes him stronger. I don't want the God that so far up to this point, he's always been faithful, but he, he could change tomorrow. He could become deceitful and unfaithful and cruel tomorrow, right? And this, the, this is the longer one, Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, 
saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have some strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I really wish I had time to talk more about this, but for, for time's sake, just notice this ending. Because it is impossible for God to lie, what do we have? We who have taken refuge in him have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Because he has, like Abraham, he has made promises to us. And guess what he cannot do? He can't break his promises. He can't do it. That's where our encouragement comes from. God cannot forfeit what he has told you he will give you. Again, you see how that's a limitation that makes him more powerful? He's more trustworthy. We have a greater hope because he is unable to fail us. So God can be trusted. The next application is that God cannot be conquered. These are related. But not only can God not be destroyed, but everything he's said to do in history is going to happen. And I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is not a probability or a prediction. This is an inevitability. The church cannot be conquered. The gospel cannot be eradicated from the earth. It cannot happen. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter who's in control of the world. It doesn't matter how many demons Satan has. None of these things matter. It just can't happen. God has made a promise. Nothing can conquer it. We won't read this all, but this is the famous passage of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? How will he not also graciously give us all things in Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, heights, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is essentially just saying that your salvation cannot be taken from you. It cannot be lost. And the reason it cannot be lost is because God is all-powerful. If he wants to save you, nothing can stop that, right? This is, again, is our hope. The last one about how God cannot be conquered in all of his purposes now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, till only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I highlight this. If your salvation was in your hands, you would lose it. I promise you, you would lose it. So by God's grace, he has taken salvation out of our hands and put it into his hands. Now, what if God had the ability to fail? we would still be unsure of our salvation. But God cannot fail. In fact, he is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory. God is able to overcome all of your weaknesses, all of your deficiencies, all of your spiritual battles, and bring you to heaven. He's able to save you, and nothing can stop him. That's why it's important for God to be all-powerful. He cannot be conquered. Um, some fun applications of this is once you believe that God is all-powerful, you now have good proofs from Scripture that the Son and the Holy Spirit are divine. We know that Jesus is God and we know that the Spirit is God because the Bible attributes to them the power that only God can possess. After Jesus calmed the storm, the onlookers say this, they were filled with great fear. And said to, one or who, who, said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What are they recognizing? No normal human being has the power or authority to control the weather. Yet when it comes to Jesus, the creation bends to his will. That's God, right? Uh, one of my other famous ones, we won't read all this. This is Matthew 9. This is when Jesus sees a paralytic man. And he knows that the man believes in him and he tells him, your faith has saved you. And then the Pharisees think in their heads, Jesus is forgiving sins. That's blasphemy. Because only God can forgive sins and Jesus is a man. But Jesus knows their hearts and he knows they're thinking this. And so then Jesus says, which is it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Notice how Jesus uses this divine power to prove his divine authority. 
He says, I have the same authority as God because I am divine and I'll prove it to you. I can do what only God can do and I can make this man miraculously healed. So the miracle that Jesus performed proved his divine nature. So because Jesus is all-powerful, we know that he is God. And uh, there's lots of texts in the scriptures that attribute the power to the Spirit. I just picked one. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Again, the Holy Spirit is being attributed to that kind of conversion power that the scriptures say only God has. Only God can resurrect the dead spiritually and we are told that it is the Spirit who actually does these things. So we can prove that the Holy Spirit is divine and that Jesus is divine because they have the power that only a divine being possesses. So those are three applications so far. This one is the most simple one, and this is one you're going to see every single week. God is worthy to be praised, right? We, we, we marvel when people have great power, whether it's physical power. I mean, like I, I remember playing football when someone in the weight room just put up weights that you just didn't think were humanly possible. I mean, you just couldn't help but just stand in awe. Or, or, or this is why people get starstruck when they meet famous people, when they meet people with great authority. There's something about power and authority and strength that just makes us venerate and makes us stand in awe. So how much more should we do this with God who has infinite power, infinite authority? And that's exactly one of the reasons why we praise him. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or even think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Because God is so powerful, we should glorify him. That's what Paul is saying. His power makes me glorify him, right? So God is worthy to be praised. But alongside that, the other end of this coin is that he's also worthy to be feared. Do you want to fall into the judgment of an all-powerful God? Jesus tells his listeners, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is a power and authority that no man possesses, only God. This is why the book of Hebrews says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God because he is all-powerful and you don't want to fall under the judgment of an all-powerful God. So he's worthy to be praised, he's worthy to be feared. And this is an interesting one, that he is God alone. Uh, and that God is all-powerful proves that he is the only God, that there's only one. He says in Isaiah 44, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Here's why I wanted to include this one, and we end with this. Charnock, well, actually, we'll have one more verse. Charnock made a really good point as I was studying where he talked about how um, in these other pagan religions, they limit God so much that this is why they had to have multiple gods because it was so hard for them to fathom a God powerful enough to do all these things by himself. So that's why in, in the Greek world, you have the pantheon and you've got the God of war and the God of love and the God of, uh, of the ocean and the gods of the stars. And you have to have all these different gods because it was so inconceivable to think of a singular being who is capable of governing the world and wars and love and all of these things all at one time. But if God's power is infinite, if he has infinite power, then certainly he is capable of doing everything by himself. Zeus's power is not infinite, so Zeus needs help. Zeus needs a god of love. Zeus needs a god of war. Zeus needs a god of Hades. He needs all these gods to help him. But because God is infinite, he does everything by himself. I don't need any help. I didn't, I didn't need help creating the way the Greek gods did. I did it all by myself. Even in Mormonism, uh, when you study Mormonism, God needed counsel. God, the whole plan of human history and salvation, God sought the counsel of people and of Satan and of Jesus. He sought counsel. God doesn't need counsel. He doesn't need help. He, do, he just does it by himself. So because God is infinite in power, that assures us that there don't need to be other gods supporting him in the work. So what's an application that he is all-powerful that no one else is God? He, he has no need for any other help. He can do it all by himself. So that was a really fun one for me to think about. 
And then I just wanted to also let you say anything if you want to, but I wanted to close with this awesome doxology from Scripture. The word doxology, by the way, just means praise. Anytime you just burst out in a praise of God, glory be to God, that's a doxology. That's why when we sing that song at the end of every church service, that song has been called the doxology. And what are the lyrics? Praise God, praise God, praise God. It's just, just praise Him. When you just praise God, that's doxology. And uh, we talk about how in the church, we always talk about how theology leads to doxology. The reason we study God is for this. Like, theology is not the end game. We don't just learn of God just to know of Him. We don't want to just fill our heads for the sake of filling our heads. We always want to learn of God so that it leads us to worship Him. Right? And so this is our kind of concluding doxology from Revelation 5.13 and 7.12. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen.